0: All right, Matthew chapter 7, we're going to go through this quick. Uh, we're, obviously, we don't have an answer, but that's okay. We're, we're at least showing you all the problems with it. All right, we're looking at view number two of our problem. Well, we're, we're looking at a problem. The problem is the Bible seems to teach that we're justified by faith. However, it teaches clearly that we're judged according to our works. We've looked at two views so far. View number one is that, yes, Christians will be judged according to their works, but that will be at the rewards judgment, not at the final judgment. Therefore, we need no evidence, we don't need anything of our justification because the final evidence for our justification is what Christ did, not what we can do, will do, possibly do, or didn't do. It has everything to do with rewards, not our justification or our salvation. View number two comes along and says, Hey, we are justified um, according to our works, but we are justified according to our works in regards to works prove our justification. There's major problems with that, number one. Um, You can't require evidence for justification if the meaning of justification is I receive the imputed righteousness of Christ that's accredited to my account. How can I have evidence for imputed righteousness? Imputed righteousness doesn't get evidence because the only evidence for it would be Christ. His righteousness would be the evidence. I don't need evidence for it. All right, so view number two changes the definition of justification to being nothing more than acquittal, nothing more than a, a not guilty verdict. And so what we have discovered is that many Protestants, MacArthur, R.C. Sproul, many who arg- argued for a evidential based. Judgment. In other words, you're going to be judged according to your works because your works are going to prove you're saved. They literally violate the very definition they offer up for justification. And we are not allowing that to happen. You can't can't say justification is the imputed righteousness of Christ and then demand evidence for it. That wouldn't be evidence of justification. That'd be evidence of... Sanctification, which then they merge justification and sanctification together and they're going to make salvation a process and literally they basically return to Rome. All right, That doesn't work, so we're trying to figure this out. But we're trying to be fair with view number two, are we not? Now the two major passages of Scripture that caused us great problems in the first hour is in Galatians 5 and 1 Corinthians 6, which basically list a whole lot of actions, right? And it says if you do any of these things... You will not inherit the kingdom of God. And when we look at these things, we can say, yes, most people could, we could avoid those things externally, but internally, probably everyone in this room is guilty of at least one. That creates all kinds of problems. So we went to Matthew chapter 7, because Matthew 7 is probably one of the most troubling passages in all the Bible when it comes to this problem. So if you have your Bible open, Matthew chapter 7. That's, that's a very quick review um, because I don't want to have to re-preach the first hour. Matthew chapter 7, let's look at verse 21 and 22 again. Remember all the problems this verse causes. Verse 21. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. All right, stop right there. What's the problem with verse 21? Verse 21 blows up all, the, all views, does it not? Right? Verse 21 blows up even the view that you're saved by grace alone through faith alone. Why? Profession is not enough. What's required? Doing the will. Not just believing in the will, doing the will of the Father. Now, does anybody have a cross-reference to 21 that would possibly get us off the hook? Does anybody have a cross-reference to verse 21 that would possibly say, wait a minute, I think we can answer this. Did anyone come up with one? No, it doesn't. OK. Yeah. Romans 2:13 would not help you. What does Romans 2:13 say? It keeps it going. Hey, you're not going to be, you're not right, it's not, you're not righteous by hearing, you're righteous by doing. Well, that may, puts it right back in the works category. Okay, so that doesn't work. Anybody else got another uh, cross reference that would help? <laughs> yeah, I don't think that's going to help. Gonna help them yeah. Anybody you know, got a cross reference that just magically gets us off the hook? Anybody? Can anybody find a verse? Okay. Now, I know this is uh, the, the, the morning worship hour, so we, I shouldn't do it this way, but that's okay. We're a small church. We can do whatever we want. Okay. People online don't get it. That's all right. Here's your... Here's your now, I, I hope this doesn't take the whole hour. <laughs> we'll see who can find it first. Can someone find a verse? It's in one of the Gospels that says something, and I'm paraphrasing, so I don't know if it's going to come across just like this, where it basically says, you know what the will of the Father is? The will of the Father is that you believe on the name of the one whom the Father has sent, Jesus Christ. Okay. Oh, I knew an independent fundamental Baptist would know it. Okay. Hey, is it John six <laughs> forty? You always know the church backgrounds when people which verses they know. Okay. Is it John chapter six? I'm in Luke. I was like, that makes absolutely no sense, man. Okay, all right. Okay. I was like, what are you talking about? Okay. John chapter 6. We'll go to verse, uh, we'll go to verse 35. We'll put it in context. John 6, 35. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. All right. That's speaking of coming and believing, correct? Everybody agree? I may say Amen because that's the two words used. Okay, <laughs> verse thirty-six. But I said unto you that you, uh, but I said unto you that ye also have seen me and believe not. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I come down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that all which he hath given me I should lose nothing, but shall rise it up again the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me that everyone which seeeth the Son and believe on, on him may have everlasting life and I will raise him up the last day. Now that's not as, as perfect as we may want it, but it comes close to making an argument that what is the will of the Father? To believe on, To believe on Jesus Christ. So if we take that, now, I'm not saying this is a good cross-reference, okay? Remember, cross-referencing is a dangerous game, right? Because we take passages that may not be related, we link them together in order to prove a theological point. Does everybody see how the game is played? Okay, but if we take this concept, and I, there may be some other verses that take the concept further. I'm, I'm not thinking, this is the one that was, first came to my mind. But let's take this, let's go back to Matthew 7. Let's play that game. Now, in the context of Matthew 7, we believe that what's being spoken of is false prophets. Everyone agree? Yeah. Now, if they're false prophets, what would be the basis, the very basis of the ground of them being a false prophet? They clearly don't believe in the... What? They're a false prophet. that don't believe in Christ. They believe something false about God or something about Christ. That makes them a false prophet. You're not a false prophet just because you do something wrong. You can do something wrong and still be a true prophet. It's the fact that you preach and believe something that is false. Most likely in this context, these false prophets would be people who do what? In the context of Matthew, false prophets would be those who proclaim that Jesus is not Messiah, the Son of God. Would that make the most sense? Yes? Right? Right? So if we put that back in its context, now let's read verse 21 that way. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that that doeth the will of the Father which is in heaven. And that will would be, believe on Jesus Christ. So these are people who have not truly put their faith in Christ. As a false prophet. Does everybody agree? I'm not saying that's the right interpretation. I'm offering it up as a possible one. Yes? Verse 22. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord. Now, I know the Lord, Lord seems like that it's a profession, but it's, not a, profe- it's, a, it's a theologically erroneous profession. Does that make sense? Yes? For example, if we go back to the early church, the Arians would have said, Lord, Lord. Deus didn't believe he was of the same essence of the Father. He believed he was the first created. Be- they'd be false prophets. Agreed? All right. Mormons may say, Lord, Lord. Jehovah's Witnesses may say, Lord, Lord. One is Pentecostals may say, Lord, Lord. They all have a wrong Jesus and a wrong God. Yes? Okay. Um, they may do all kinds of wonderful religious acts. So, this makes sure... If we interpret Matthew 7 as only pertaining to false prophets... Then the, the verses leading before about fruit, what would be the fruit that would be judged? Not fruit of action, but fruit of what? Belief. In other words, what would be the fruit? Philological fruit, not action. Okay? When you verse earlier, was it the verse Okay, where do you have that? Okay, I think John 6 has a lot of that, but let's go back and add that. Okay, okay well, let's go back to John 6. John 6 all over the place may be the, the key chapter for this, but yeah, we, can add, we can add some to it if we need to. John six twenty nine. Jesus answered and said unto them, this is the work of God that you believe on him who he hath sent. All right. Yeah, that's the, if you want to work to save you, That's a work to save you, right? Yes? Okay, all right. And then... Yeah, in verse 47, Verily I say unto you, He that believeth on me hath everlasting life. Right. Okay, so that... If you put all that together, what is the will of the Father? Believe in the Son. What is the work of God? Believe in His Son. And if you believe on His Son, you have everlasting life. Okay, so that, that... and make sure we understand this, then the evidence of one's justification would be what? Belief. Right, okay. But in Matthew 7, what I'm trying to argue is Matthew 7, remember I said it blows up almost every theory? And the only way to fix it from blowing up every theory is we need a new interpretation of Matthew 7. And so I am arguing Matthew 7 in its context. We can't take it out of its context and start applying it to everyone. Hey, by your fruits, I'm going to know if you're saved. No, by your fruits, I'm going to know if you're a false prophet coming to me in sheep's clothing. And how am I going to know? What fruit? What you believe, what you teach. It can't just be actions, right? They have all kinds of good actions. If I'm judging these men based off their actions, I'm going to think they're true prophets. Yes? Yes? but they don't do the will of the Father. Well, what will were they not doing? They were preaching, they were healing people, they were casting out demons. What will were they not following? To believe on Jesus. That has to be the way to interpret Matthew 7. That has to be. If we interpret it any other way, remember, if we interpret it any other way, what occur, What happens? If we take this to be about fruit as that, hey, Bobby, I've got to look at your life this week. Is there good fruit or bad fruit? According to Matthew 7, if he produces any corrupt fruit, he's lost. Okay, if I'm going to take that to action, no one is going to be justified. If I take it to theological fruit, now it makes sense. If this week Bobby says, hey, I don't believe Jesus is the eternal son of God and he wasn't the Messiah, okay, you're lost. Does that make sense? So, what's the only way to know if a prophet is a is in sheep's clothing? Not by his actions. That's so many times that's how people judge preaching. He's nice. He's sweet. He's so loving. He's so caring. He's so wonderful. Look at all the nice things. He's a stinking heretic. What determines him being a heretic? Not action what he teaches and what he believes what, what is he referring to in Matthew 7 false prophets that's that, that's I don't how there's no other way to get at, if we if we do anything else with Matthew 7 we destroy our own any view that you're going to hold to about justification according to works Matthew 7 will mess up every view you have unless we offer a counter interpretation does that make sense remember when you hold to a doctrinal th- uh, belief every verse right, has to, has to somehow correspond with your doctrinal belief. If you're going to say, if you're going to argue, I am saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone, I don't need any works, right? Well, this verse comes along and, make, and argues, well, wait a minute, Matthew 7 seems to argue, I've got to do the will of the Father to be saved. Right, Matthew 7.21? All right, that would require works. All right, that doesn't work. Now, if I can re- interpret Matthew 7.21 going, yes, there is a will. I have, to, I have to do the will of the Father. And what is the will of the Father? believe on Christ. Boom. Okay, I'm good. I can still believe and save by grace alone through faith alone because of Christ alone. If I believe, works is the evidence of my salvation and the reason I'm going to be judged according to works is because works is going to prove I'm saved. Matthew 7:22 causes problems because they did all kinds of works and they were still not saved. So that would not work. What's the problem? Why were they lost in Matthew 7:22? There were false prophets who obviously rejected the teachings and, 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 and the person of Christ. That's the only way to interpret this. Does that make sense? Okay, I'm not saying that's the best interpretation. I'm saying that if we don't do that, every view we come up with is destroyed by Matthew seven twenty one to 22. Does that agree? Does that happen? Does everybody really understand? Okay. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. In Jesus' name. Yes. Okay. You judge them by their theological belief. Mormons preach in Jesus' name. Jehovah's Witnesses preach in Jesus' name. But we would say that they're theologically wrong because they don't believe in the right Jesus the right way. Does that make sense? Yes. And that's why I think that, because clearly what's the first thing they go after is they prophesy in thy name. And what's the context? False prophets. Do not allow people to take these verses out of context and say, hey, you know how I know the twins if they're saved or they're not saved? It's by their fruits. Well, I could probably prove they're lost. And then she could turn around, or both of them, and turn around and prove that I'm lost. This fruit has to be different than than the way we've interpreted. We've all interpreted it that way, right? Because we ripped it out of its immediate context. Okay, does that make sense? Okay, so... That, that, that takes care of one ma- ma- major passage. What are the other two passages that we still don't have a good answer for? 1 Corinthians 6 and Galatians 5, which seems to argue what? If you do any of these things, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. We do not have a good interpretation for those. Everyone agree? So what are two, what are two chapters we're still struggling with? Galatians 5, 1 Corinthians 6. Everybody got that? All right. Helpful? Okay, now, I would like to continue, and I know you're saying, well, what's the answer for Galatians 5? I don't have an answer for Galatians 5 and 1 Corinthians 6. I don't, because those seem to argue for an evidential argument. The only problem is I could argue that we've all violated those all the time, so we'd have to do another thing. All right, so this is what we're going to do. We're going to introduce view number three. Okay? Sounds good? All right. Oh, boy. Here we go. Here's view number three. Everybody ready? Any questions? Everybody feel like they got view two at least understood? And we got two passages we're not able to understand. Agree? Yes? Would we agree 1 Corinthians 5 and 1 Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6 and Galatians 5? Would we agree that those passages cause problems for both views that we've looked at so far? Yes, All right? Why do, they, why do they have problems for the first view? First view argues you don't need any works. These passages seem to argue that you can do certain things and not be saved. Why do they cause problems for the second view? They seem to argue for the second view, do they not? Hey, works are evidence, what's the problem? Wait a minute. Woe is me because we've all, unless we do what with those two passages? Reduce it to external action only. And even if you reduce it to external action, everyone here believes that someone could commit one of those listed and still be saved. So what does most Protestants do with it? It's not a one-time act. It's not a two-time act. It's the, that you, this is a lifestyle. Well, that's, how do you judge a lifestyle? Like, you know. All right, I've been a Christian for 30 years. I believe I've only got 20 years left. So 30, 30 is more than 20, right? So for the next 20, I'm in Vegas, baby. I'm gone. See you later. I got, I got 30 good. twenty. If I just do live 20 in absolute debauchery in Vegas, am I still saved? is my lifestyle more known by my Good. Y'all say, well, that's kind of a stupid way to look at it. Well, I mean, if you're going to make it an argument that it's your lifestyle, all I gotta need is more of a lifestyle that proved that it was good, right? Or you say, well, no, you have to do the the twenty has to come first, and then the thirty has to come later. Okay. Oh man, I wasted twenty good years I could have had in Vegas, and I blew them. Okay. Right? right. So does that? And people say, well, no, you would never think that way. But you got to ask those kinds of questions. So we don't have any good answers there, but. We'll have to see what to do. I wish we could come with an alternative interpretation of those. They're not as easy to, to reinterpret as Matthew 7 was. Matthew 7 was because we had a context. Does that make sense? Galatians and Corinthians is hard because who is he talking to? Believers. Yeah, that's a problem. All right, here we go. Here's view number three. Are you ready to be so absolute confused you're not even going to know what to do? right? How, how far have you read in the book, Sarah? Okay, all right. Okay, the title title's already confusing enough? All right, here we go. You ready for review number three? Write this down. Justification by faith and judgment according to works. Hang on, I mean, I, I, I'm sorry, I'm missing half of my title. If Paul could believe both in justification by faith and judgment according to works, why should that be a problem for us? If Paul could believe both in justification by faith and judgment according to works, why should that be a problem for us? <laughs> now you know what this is going. You know what this where this view is leading, right? Is that, anybody can tell me where this view is headed. Nope, this view is going to lead to this. Paul teaches both. There's no way to reconcile it. We teach both. This is going to be a, an, an, an answer. This is going to be a non-answer answer. Right, this, this, this literally is going to sound like a philosophy class. Okay, Because we're not, I'm not going to give you an answer because what, they're going to say there can't be. He taught both. We can't reconcile it. Now everyone here probably believes it can be reconciled if you I, I want to make sure everyone in this room believes if you believe you can reconcile it, you're wrong this is un, this is not reco, there's no way to reconcile I got nine hundred verses that seem to say, hey, I'm saved by grace alone and I got all these verses that say, hey, if you do this, you don't do, you got to do this, you got to do this if you don't do this, you don't do this, you're not going to be saved you do this you don't, you know you got well, how many verses about works? just the judgment verses alone create enough problems yeah. Right. Hey, I mean, Jesus was very clear. Those who do good get to go where? Those who do bad go where? I, All right. I mean, if Jesus himself said it, you're like, well, he didn't really mean it. Well, you go tell Jesus what he meant. Okay? I'm not really, in that. I don't feel so comfortable about saying, hey, Jesus, you didn't really mean what you said. Okay? I, I just, that just feels a little kind of, that's a little arrogant. Hey, God, you don't know what you're, it sounds like Peter, Right? Hey, no, 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 you're not going to die on a cross. And what, what happened when Peter told Jesus what he meant? Get behind me, Satan. So you probably want to take that advice to your, uh, ourselves, all right? Well, let's see where they go here. You ready? One of the most troubling problems in writing on the theology of the New Testament or on the New Testament's teaching on a particular theme or issue is that we quickly, quickly find there is no single or uniform theology All right, if there's anything I can teach you so far in this lesson is what I just read. Everyone needs to write that down. Let me read it again. One of the most troubling problems in writing on the theology of the New Testament or on the New Testament's teaching on a particular theme or issue is that we quickly find there is no single or uniform theology. Now, you, if you go to church, you don't believe that. If you study theology, you know that. Why pastors preach garbage from the pulpit to make people think there is a uniform theology is because pastors are liars who don't want people to know the truth. They just want people to be comfortable so that they have big churches and nice salaries. Okay? But the reality is there is no uniform theology. It's all over the stinking place. It's all over the place. You're like, okay, wait a minute. I thought I was supposed to, okay, wait a wait, minute. Wait. These verses, these verses. And so what do you do when you preach? You just preach the verses that agree with the theology you're teaching. And then everyone sits in the pew going, hey, man, that was a great sermon. I love that sermon. It made me feel so good. Yeah, okay. Wonderful. And people who know theology are sitting in the pew going, what kind of? And garbage is, and that's why I never got along in churches. Okay, that's because I'm always like, um, I got about nine thousand questions here, and then everybody be like, "Oh, just shut up and go away." Okay, we don't want your questions. Okay, yeah, you should see me when, when I was in like Sunday school classroom. Well, Sunday school teachers hated me. Yeah, hated me. got would be like, I got twelve questions, and they're like, "Ah, uh, I prepared this last night." Okay, well, you know, you probably should Probably the wrong student for your Sunday school class, okay? Because I spent all week studying it. Because you tell me what we're going to be studying this week. To know, and I want everyone. Does everyone know how, how big a statement that is? There's no uniform theology. You know why? That's a, good, that's a good way of getting around. I, there's, there's lots of, we could come in with a lots of arguments here about why. Okay, now this brings into questions and you get into higher criticism. You get into, you, start, you can start questioning inspiration. You get into some major theological dr- drama here. Here's the issue. I think the reason it's not uniform and just follow me. And I've got to be very careful because I, I don't want to step over into heresy. But i got to be really, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get really close to the line. The Bible is not written in a uniformed fashion. Right? The first four books are what? From a, lit- a, lit- a, liter- a literary analysis. Well, how do we classify the first four? The Gospel, but what would we call it from a literary st- st- stance? What kind of writing is it? Narrative. narrative. Right? And not only just narrative, it's narrative in what way? It's a biography, Right? Would we agree that it's is a, a narrative t- and a biography telling us about whom, Jesus. Jesus okay. Now these are written by four. Different individuals, we believe that some may have been relying on other eyewitnesses. We can get to a whole discussion of how they're written. But they are there. And we could argue that each one has its own purpose, right? Some will argue that this is trying to show Jesus is this, this gospel. And not even, even anyone even really agrees on that. All we know is here's all these, and, and sometimes they're not even necessarily in chronological order, right? They will jump. And you're like, wait a minute, this event, where did this event, this event didn't. So they're not, in many cases, not in chronological order. They don't all contain the same information, right? All right, so now you either have to get by a harmony of the gospel where you spend half your life going, okay, wait, this goes here, this goes, wait, that goes, no, that goes here. That goes, no, that goes, oh, I don't know where anything goes. Okay, and then then we have some issues that sometimes the narratives don't agree. How many people went to the tomb? Who went first? Right? Okay, these are issues. Now, the average church, you don't get those problems. They're just going to preach a little verse in Matthew, give you three points. You get to go home by noon. okay? But what? what some, some of us are sitting there going, well, wait a minute. Uh, hey, that account over in Luke causes problems. Remember when we looked at the call of the disciples? Did they get called once or did they get called twice? Because we thought they left their nets the first time, but then we read later on that they were back at their nets, and then they seemed to get called again. So did they leave their nets the first time and then go back and then get called a second time? Remember we read into those... Those are problems, right? So so you start off with narrative, kind of teaching a biography, and clearly each writer has a purpose. The purpose in many cases is not to give us everything Jesus did, and the purpose in many cases is not to even give us in chronological order. They're giving us information to prove a greater theme, right? Okay, I'm going to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. I'm going to prove that Jesus is, is the Son of God. Well, if they're only trying to prove Jesus as the Son of God, they're leaving out other information, right? John seems to be focused on his deity. I think Luke, that we argue, is focused on his humanity. Okay, well, okay, that, you see how that's not going to be uniformed because I'm not getting one voice with one purpose. I'm getting four voice, voices with four different purposes, and those purposes are not uniformed. Then I go into Acts. Now, what, what is Acts? It's history, right? Yes. Okay. And what's the history of? Church. Early, Early church. church. Now, this contains all kinds of information, right? And not only that, from a theological point, what else do we call Acts? A transitional book, right? Because we're, transition, we're transitioning into a time of the apostles, and now we have to argue, now, is what happened in Acts, is it standard for what happens today? Okay, well... It, it, is it giving me a uniformed view on how our church should operate? I would say, I hope not, because I don't, our church is not operating the way they operated. All right, you see, they're not uniformed. Then I, then I go into what? Epistles. Now, these are letters written to churches. And each church, there was a specific purpose. You see how it's not uniformed? In other words, it's not set out to give me a systematic theology. It's letters and, and histories written for specific purposes. You're not going to get a uniformed answer. If I go to a systematic theology, I don't have one, have one up here. Um, if, if I don't, don't believe I do. If I have a systematic theology, guess what? I open it up and go, oh, the scriptures. Now I'm going to get a uniform teaching on the scriptures. Christ. okay, And it's going to be broken down. His humanity... His deity. Right? God. It's, that's uniformed. It's not, it's not uniform that way. Right? Give me the teaching of God. Now what am I going to require to try to get the teaching of God from the Bible? I got to go here. I got to go over here. It's not organized in any way, shape, or form. It's not in one book. I'm putting verses together that are written by different people thousands of years separated. I'm going to Genesis, and if we believe Mosaic authorship of, of Genesis, okay, I got him t- saying things, hey, let us create man in our end. Well, Where did the plural come from? Okay. Now, do I get a verse that explains the plural? No! never, Nowhere! Right? So then I got to go, okay, wait a minute, okay, so I got God, now what, this Jesus, is Jesus one of the R? You know, right? It's not uniformed. So people, the reason you believe it's uniformed is because you come to churches who try to pretend that it's uniformed. So when it comes to salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, you think it's uniformed. Believe in Jesus and you're saved. Okay, good. Now later on you'll hear you're judged according to works and you're like, wait, wait, that doesn't make sense. Don't worry about it. It just proves you're saved. Okay, that makes sense. Until you start reading all these verses, you're like, wait a minute. These verses causes all kinds. Of, Matthew 7 caused all kinds of problems for us, right? We still got Galatians and 1 Corinthians. It causes all kinds of problems. It's not uniformed. All right? Does everybody understand that? You think it is, but it's not. That's how come it requires what? Study. And, and, and it, and it, and it doesn't it appear, James teaches something very different than Paul. You could argue Paul contradicts himself. All right, here we go. There are some basic essentials, of course. The centrality of Christ, the call for faith, call for faith slash trust, for example. But when such basic essentials are elaborated or referred to Different situations, the more diverse expressions of the teaching can quickly become difficult to hold together. Let me stop right there. That is what I told you, right? If we stay way back, like there's the truth, and we stay way back here, right? And here's how we stay here 30 minute sermons, don't ask too many questions, three points in a prayer, and let's go home. Looks uniformed, looks all good, right? Looks so wonderful. But the minute you're like, you know what, I'm going to study. I'm going to study. I'm going to really study my Bible. I'm going to really. And you, you keep walking this way. And guess what happens to what looks so uniformed? It looks like the World Trade Center after 9 11. It's just in shambles. And you got this big wall of smoke coming out and you start running the opposite direction. Like, let me get back here in my little small group. Just tell me it all makes sense. And that's what y'all want me to do sometimes. Just shut up and tell me it makes sense. Okay? It doesn't. And then you have to start picking through the ruins of, of, you know, it all come crumbled down. You're like, oh man, what do I do? I don't know what to do. None of this makes any sense. I'm so confused. What does he want? Okay. Right? And that's that's how y'all sound. Y'all just whine. Like, I don't know what he wants. He's so confused. It makes no sense. Well, what do you want me to do? The building crumbled. I can't fix it. And I'm not the one who knocked it down. You're like, you're the one who drugged me to look at the ruins of the building. Okay, well, you got in the car. Don't blame me. Right? Now, he, he goes on. I made this point in my unity and diversity in the New Testament. Right, that's a book. Okay, I know all of you have read Unity and Diversity in the New Testament, and of course, you have it. And of course, no pastor is going to talk about the book from the pulpit, okay? Because well, that would go against everything. He says, when I noted, this is what he noted in the book, that it was certainly possible uh, to abstract a core. I, I don't want to get into a whole. I don't. I don't want to get too complicated here. Um, I'll, I'll try to simplify this. Yeah, I'm going to try my best here. It's it's basically possible to put together a a simple or a core idea, right? Uh, from different New Testament writings, uh, a core on which the New Testament writers would agree, right? So in other words, you, you, can, you can try to put something together that looks like, okay, this is the core elements of what the New Testament teaches, right? This is kind of done um, in every Bible college you go to, every seminary you go to. I've had to take it 9,000 times because for some weird reason, every school I go to, we won't accept that credit. Well, I've taken New Testament survey 8 billion times, but every time I have to take it, it's the same thing. Here's the basic survey, and it looks good, from the basic core, here's the basic core teaching. It looks good until you dig in and then it starts falling apart. All right. So he's going to argue that there, there's a basic core thing you can put together. All right. Um, he goes, uh, a core in which the New Testament writers would agree. But as soon as the core was elaborated in the different writings and expressed in reference to different particular situations, it becomes diverse. So at, at first you can say, here's the core teaching. But then once you start elaborating or taking that core teaching and trying to work it out, you're like, wait a minute. It's not so core. It's not so central. It's diverse. Does that make sense? That's what I say. From far away, it looks good. Up close, it looks broken. Wait. Right, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of adding my own explanation there, right? An obvious case is the gospel for the Gentiles and the gospel for the circumcision uh, as agreed in Galatians 2.9. The same gospel, yes, but it only takes the next paragraph, Galatians 2.11-16, to show that the question of how this gospel was understood and worked out was by no means agreed or an effective force for unity or unified mission. Let me make that very clear. If you read parts of Galatians, it's going to say the same Gospels for Jew and Gentile. And everybody says, Amen. Amen. However, how to work out that Gospel, there wasn't unity and there was division and it wasn't easy to figure out. Does that make sense? That's why Peter and Paul got into an argument. And I agree with Miss Gussler, it's hot in here. So I'm going to pass out and die here in a minute. Okay, all right. That's a little hyperbole, but per- not far, okay okay, not, not too far, right so um so everybody gets that basic idea. It always looks good, but when but you even see it in the Bible where you're like, hey, there's one gospel for Jew and Gentile, what's the problem? Well, it's obviously a big problem, right? They had to have an entire church council to figure out how to make it work, right. He goes on, I made a similar point in Theology of Paul the Apostle, another book he wrote. He, he's, he obviously is continuing to make this point that there's, there's broken unity. It's not as, as unified as we think that it is. Uh, he says he, he made a similar point in reference to Paul's diverse metaphors of salvation. Paul uses many different metaphors for salvation. Well, when you start using metaphors for salvation, you just already know that it could be a problem, all right? The range of experiences that Paul referred to in his metaphors meant that no single metaphor was adequate to capture that range or indeed to express the depths of any particular experience. Metaphors, like liberation or reconciliation, can undoubtedly express aspects of the beginning or process of salvation. That's a key phrase there. But hardly the whole of it. Paul could talk of his own experience as, um, as, an, as an abortion of becoming, uh, uh, of becoming uh, the Corinthians father through the gospel, of giving birth to the Galatians. He uses the imagery of adoption twice within a few verses, first in connection with the beginning of Christian experience and second of its climax and the resurrection of the body. Becoming a Christian uh, can be likened to an engagement with Christ or indeed to a marriage with Christ or to being put to death with Christ. How can we hold those all together? In other words, if you go through Paul, he uses all kinds of metaphors, right? He gave birth to them. Then he gives the idea that something could happen to end it. He gives the idea of marriage to Christ, but you're supposed to die to self. There's all these metaphors used out the Bible. One metaphor by itself Looks like a good sermon because you give it three points and you get out by 12. However, put that metaphor with this metaphor, and you're like, wait, I'm married with Christ, but I died. So, how, what? Wait, I'm I'm, I'm supposed to die, but I'm supposed to walk. (laughs) right, okay, wait, how does this work, right? In other words, all these metaphors start having problems. How can we fit them all into a single coherent narrative? Listen carefully. You cannot fit them into a coherent narrative. You cannot. Oh, I wish I, I wish I knew the name of the of the movie. Um, there's a movie, um, and it's it's used a lot in film and film studies and, and talk about films. You watch the movie, right? And by the time the movie is over, you're so perplexed. You don't know what just happened. You're so confused. You're like, "I am so lost here. I don't know what just happened. What just happened?" And then it hopefully it will dawn on you before the movie ends. Oh, the only way to understand the movie is to have to watch the movie in reverse. The movie is told in the wrong direction. When you get to the end, you have to then put the whole story back together as you leave the theater but in reverse. The last scene is actually the beginning scene, right? Brilliant. It's brilliant, okay? But it demonstrates that how to put together the narrative sometimes can be complicated. And we've talked a lot of times about interpreting narratives, but that most movies do not use linear narrative. They they use a nonlinear narrative of storytelling, and you've got to be able to figure that out. Some people are like, well, I don't like that because it jumps around. It's nonlinear. Catch on. Well, here, it's not a coherent narrative, now, you think it's a coherent narrative, but it's not. Can you read from Matthew to Revelation in a coherent narrative? No, because you read something in Matthew and you're like, well, wait a minute. What am I supposed to believe about this? I'm going to have to jump where? I may have to jump to Ephesians. And then when I get to Ephesians, where I, may, or where I may have to jump? I may have to go all the way back to Deuteronomy. Is that a coherent narrative? No. No. It's not coherent in any way, shape, or form. Of course, fundamental to the, whole, to the whole is the problem of language. That the language of everyday human experience is bas- basically inadequate to express the less than tangible spiritual realities, including the language and imagery used for God for the reality of the risen and exalted Jesus, or for the person and work of the Holy Spirit. There's another problem. Not only is it a, a, not a coherent narrative, we don't have adequate language to express many of these spiritual realities. Okay. Now, this should start giving you a feeling, well, then how can I know truth? That's, yeah, there's, that's a problem I've always struggled with. And all these cases, if we were to speak about them at all, we must accept that the imagery is analogical, that the language is metaphorical, and this has to include the recognition that such language is not literal and that to understand it as literal propositional statements is to misunderstand it and abuse it. All right. Now, it's not literal. What does he mean by it's not literal? The imagery and the metaphors are not literal, Everybody understands they're not literal. When it says take up the cross and die, it's not literal. Right. It's metaphorical. All right, so now I'm using metaphorical, non-literal language and I've got to somehow try to create a coherent narrative that makes sense. We all see, we've all been told how easy it is. Remember, this is why I completely, I, I, I pretty much have uh, reached the conclusion I no longer believe in the perspicuity of Scripture. I pretty much reject that. I, it's just garbage. It's not easy. And this is giving you an outline of all the problems with why it's not easy. And if it was so easy, we should be able to at least figure out justification by faith and judgment according to works, right? Nobody can obviously agree on it. Such language we can believe with confidence is uh, referential. It refers to actual realities. But it is elusive, and es- a- a- it is elusive rather than straightforwardly descriptive. Any attempts to coordinate the metaphors into some kind of ordo salutis—everybody know what that is, order of salvation. right? Now, please note: any attempt to coordinate the metaphors into some kind of order of salvation inevitably uses a model of rationality into which the metaphors do not readily fit. Now, that's a massive statement. We've talked about the ordo salutis here. He's arguing you can't do it. The metaphors won't fit. Now, you know why it seems to work? Because we teach the Ordo Salutis by coming way over here and say, okay, guys, let's look at the Orta Salutis. And let's only look at the Ordo Salutis. Let's not question anything else. The minute you take the Ordo Salutis and start reading the rest of the Bible, you're like, wait, 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 wait. wait. I'm so confused. I'm so confused. There's an order here, Right? There's, well, there's foreknowledge. There's election, right? Okay, there's, there's regeneration. You know, yeah, there's justification. Wait, how do I, wait. Now, if, once I get into the rest of the Bible, the order seems to fall apart. That's his argument here, right? The amazing difficulty that so many Pauline commentators have experienced in trying to hold together his language of justification and participation in Christ well illustrates the blind spot here. All kinds of commentators have problems. Now, here's, the th- here's what drives me crazy. The commentaries tell you there's a problem. Pastors from the pulpit pretend there's not a problem. Now, I, I, I've got no nice things to say. Pastors who pretend there's not a problem, they are liars. There, there's, there's only three possibilities. Okay? They don't know, that means they're ignorant. And if they're ignorant, then what are they reading Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday? Because you think a pastor would be reading some commentaries. So I have a hard time believing in ignorance. Right? I have a hard time believing that. That's will, willful ignorance. Okay? Or B, they know the difficulty. They know the problem. And they willingly cover it up. Or three... They are so arrogant, they think that none of those problems are really problems, and they've got it figured out. None of that is good. Ignorance is not good. Covering it up is not good. Now, yeah, I know what you're thinking. I wish you would cover it up. Okay. No, you don't. Not if you want truth. Okay. And, 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 you, and you probably wish, well, I wish you would just be more straightforward and give me an answer. No, you don't, because that would be arrogance on my part. I don't can't if no commentary can figure it out how can I figure it out? I know more than every I know more than every church father and I know more than every commentary. Aren't you glad you've picked this church? Okay? And you listen to some of the pastors preach on this and that's how they come across. It's not that big a problem. It's no big deal. And I'm just screaming at my, you know, iPad smashing it. What do you mean there's no problem? Yeah, I, w- I want to call those pastors. Who do you think you are? Now they're like you're just making it more complicated than it is. Okay. Well, I'll send everyone to your, your church to get your garbage answer that you gave in 34 minutes. Okay. Because we've been on it for now six years. But, you know, I, I just have a hard time with that. Amazing. Since Paul himself seems to have found no difficulty in thinking together the two uh, to us, divergent models of the salvation process held out in his gospel. Now he's going to argue, Paul obviously didn't seem to think there was a problem. I agree Paul did not seem to think there was a problem. Everyone agree? All right. Now, wonderful that Paul's got it figured out. He had a couple of advantages I don't have. Right? A, he was taught by Jesus himself. I wasn't. Okay? B, he lived at a time where all these issues were being talked about. C, he was an actual apostle, and D, he wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I'm missing out on all of those advantages. Okay? Despite all this, the history of Christianity has been repeated, has seen repeated attempts to draw us a coherent ordo salutis. The history of Christianity is trying to give us a a coherent ordo salutis, an order of salvation. Now, this is what to say. Christianity has tried to get us a coherent order of salvation. And in fact, it would be interesting right now. I won't do it. I would like to hand out a piece of paper and have you all write down the Ordo Salutis and see if anyone could even get it right. And if you can't, I want to make sure you understand this, that you should be embarrassed. I mean, you're talking salvation. I mean, if you don't even know what to believe about salvation, your Christianity is pretty, pretty messed up. Right? Orta Salutis is a pretty key, key, key important view. Right. And we've talked and, and don't act like, well, I was never taught. Okay. I've taught on Orta Salutis <laughs> multiple times. OK, multiple times. OK. All right. Here we go. And it's been talked about for 2000 years. So it's not like it was hidden in a Vatican vault that you couldn't get to. OK. You've had access to it for your whole Christian life. All right. Here we go. Despite all this, the history of Christianity has, been repeated, has seen repeated attempts to draw up a coherent order salutis, to settle on a particular formulation or metaphor or structure that provides the key or norm to all the others, one to which all the others can therefore be subordinated. In other words, you come up with a view, there's always been this attempt, here's our view and anything that contradicts our view is in subordination to our view. So in other words, if you believe in free grace, I'm saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone, I do not have to do anything, I don't need any evidence. If I believe in Jesus and I never do anything, I'm saved. If you believe that, then any verse that contradicts that, you just do what? It's subordinated to your view. And if you believe in the evidential view... Right? And you're like, well, wait, there's these verses that seem to imply that in justification, I'm given the imputed righteousness of Christ, why do I need evidence? You just make those verses subordinated to your view. Does everybody understand how that works? And y'all do that a lot of times when, we, when y'all ask a question or if, you, or if you seem to have a disagreement. I'll, be, I'll, 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 I'll speak for 30 minutes, right? And then when you don't like it, you just throw out a verse, thinking that that verse trumps what I've just said for 30 minutes. Okay. It doesn't work that way. One verse doesn't subordinate all the teaching of the Bible unless you just want everything to be subordinated to that one verse that you like. And that's how we do it. Pick the verse. This verse works for me. Everything else is in subordination to it. That's not how you do hermeneutics. That's not how you do theology. That is bad, 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 bad. bad. We've all been guilty of it. Okay, if y'all don't, I can pull up the recordings where you're on the recording doing it, okay? okay, I've got plenty of the recordings where y'all do it, okay? I, I could do the greatest hits of Victory Baptist Church doing bad hermeneutics from the pew, okay? It's, it's pretty bad, all right? But, but, but you don't know what else to do. When you get caught and you don't know what else to do, you're like, I don't know the answer to this. I don't know the answer. I'll, this verse! And I'm like that verse doesn't fix it. It, it. You think it does, but it doesn't. Does everybody understand why it doesn't fix it? Because what are you? What, what's your hermeneutic? My verse trumps your verse. That's not hermeneutics. Does everybody understand that? Okay. Does that make sense? I hope so. All right. Um, for example, in the history of mainstream Christianity, it quickly became the norm to make the bishop the focus of the church and to rule out of order any alternative despite the diversity of church order attested in the New Testament churches, right? Now, I want to stop right here. This is where we had a big problem here for a very short period of time because um, people wanted to like, we need an elder rule. We need elder rule because they found some verses that say elder rule. We need elder rule. I'm like, okay, we got 10 people. How many elders do we need? We need, we need, we need nine elders, We need nine elders for ten people? Like, how many elders do you need? Oh, you gotta have elder rule. You gotta have elder rule. You gotta have elder rule. And I'd be like, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Does the Bible articulate exactly how this elder rule is supposed to work? How how is it supposed to work? And what they really wanted, they didn't like me, and they wanted someone else to be elected. They wanted themselves to be elected as an elder so that they could correct me. Right? Which then would have only led to what? Division between the elders. And those who've been to elder-led churches, what happens when the elders disagree? Okay, do what? Okay, oh, they, it comes to the congregation. Are voting amongst the elders? Right? Okay, but what happens when it just it's uh, irreconcilable? So one of the elders leaves, right? <laughs> what a great solution, right? Now we got we got division amongst the church, and then what typically happens? The congregation starts finding out what the elders are disagreeing about, right? And so when the elder leaves, the people leave. <laughs> it doesn't fix anything, right? But they're like, we need this, we need this, we need this. But this is what happens. Everyone goes to the verses that seem to agree with their view of church order. Does the Bible get, really lay out how church is to be done? Come on. It doesn't doesn't give us an order of service, right? It doesn't really give us, does does the congregation vote? Do they not vote? We don't really have that, right? Do we? Do you have a a pastor in charge? Do I refer to myself as a bishop? Do we need a structure outside of, of this church to control that church? How does this work? This leads to lots of questions, there's lots of alternative ways of reading these ver- ver- verses, and uh, Presbyterians like you need a presbytery. You got to have. You know, well, no, you need a synod. No, you need. Well, Southern Baptists, you have a denomination, but all the churches are autonomous, right? And th- so some would argue that in the New Testament the churches are autonomous. You can make an argument for the autonomy of churches. I've had to debate both. Okay, D- but the point is, what do you do? You pick the verses that agree with your view, and then what do you do? Everything else is subordinate. Or again, notwithstanding, a verse like John chapter 3, verse 8. Look at John 3 8 real quick. We'll stop right here. What does John 3 8 say? Speaking of the Holy Spirit, what does it say about the Holy Spirit? It likens the Holy Spirit unto something. The wind can't control it you have no control over it right now listen to what he says a verse like john 3 8 and the record of the spirit's uncontrollability in christianity's beginnings the work of the spirit was compressed into sacrament and bible where it could be more easily controlled the spirit's functioning restrained by being neatly fitted into good order same thing happened right so we're like, well, the spirit seems to just do what it's want. Well we need an order to start. Now is the order wrong? And some of the churches where the spirit just flows around, guess what happens? Bobby may just stand up and start preaching. preaching. Diane may stand up and start preaching. Oh, we don't want that. Okay. Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Joel for crying out loud could stand up and start preaching. We definitely don't want that. Okay. Right. Yeah. So So then we're like, well, that that can't work. Well, what's John 3, 8 say? Is there a uniformed way of explaining to me how John 3, 8 should be interpreted? The answer is no. Everybody agree? Similarly, in Lutheranism, the metaphor of justification became the article by which the church stands or falls. Lutheranism says justification is the key article. If you get that wrong, the church falls. Does the Bible say that? So what what is he trying to demonstrate? We'll end with this. Now I had to skip around a little bit and I didn't read every word. I skipped around and skipped some words because I didn't want to get into other alternative discussions about other issues. But I'm trying to simplify. He's trying to say that when I come to my Bible, what do I not have? I don't have uniformity. I do not have a uniformed theology. I do not have a uniform narrative. What do I have? Different books written for different purposes by different people at different times and I therefore go and what do I try to do from the Bible? Pull things out to create a uniformed theology. What do we all want right now in this room? A uniform theology on what does it mean that we're justified by faith and judged according to works. He's going to make an argument that the Bible isn't uniformed. Now, Please note, that could create all of us some serious problems, right? Because if it's not uniform, then how can we be sure of anything? I want to make sure we make this very clear. If the Bible is not uniform, how can we be sure of anything? That's going to be the problem for this view. This view is going to lead us into great doubt of certainty about everything. However... The other views tried to give us certainty, but once we took those views and compared it to the rest of Scripture, did it stay so uniformed and look so nice and neat as it first appeared? It came crumbling down like the World Trade Centers, right? Okay, That's the problem. I can give you a view and stay 100 miles away from it, and you're like, "Woo, we figured that out today, let's go home. And and as long as we stay 100 miles from it, you think you're all smart. It's like my college professor used to say, what's the goal of education? Show you how dumb you really are. It's like if you came to my class to get your ego that you think you're smart, I'm going to do everything in my power to show you that you're an idiot. Why? Because education can't occur until you know how dumb you are. And for everything you learn, guess what you realize? For everything I've learned, I realize how much I didn't know. Every, every time I, that, that drives y'all, yeah, I know that drives y'all crazy, but every time I study the Bible, I come back going, hmm, I thought I knew this, but I, did, I, did, I don't think we really knew this. And you're like, oh, I wish you'd just tell me what to believe. No, you don't. My job is to show you how much you don't know, and I do that every Sunday. You're like, well, what do we know? Nothing. We know something this morning. No, we know that the Bible is not, does not give us a uniform theology and it's not a coherent narrative. <laughs> there we go. You just learned something. Now, next week we may change that. Okay. But this week, no, there's no way to change that. There's no way to change that. Just read the Bible. and you, I mean, don't you realize? I mean, you're in Genesis and you're like, well, I don't, I don't understand. You got things happening. You're like, well, wait. Were they judged according to the... Well, they did that before the law of Moses. Does the law of Moses apply? How do we judge these people? Was, was it wrong to take a, 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 the Hagar from Egypt? Was it wrong? I mean, there was no law against adultery yet, right? Was it wrong? Was it not wrong? Is it coherent? No. It just tells us what happened. It doesn't even give us an interpretation. In fact, in some cases, people in the Old Testament do bad things and it doesn't even tell you that it was bad. You judge that it's bad because you're trying to create what in your mind—a coherent narrative. You're creating that in your mind because we like to do that. We we do that with we do that with gossip. We hear a little bit of gossip about someone, and we create a narrative in our mind about the gossip. Well, slow down. You heard got one piece of information, and now you're stringing it all together. And you're just filling it all in, and in your mind it makes sense. You're like, no, you took one piece of information about someone. We we create narratives, and we do the same with Scripture. We'll see where they go with this tonight. All right. Here, let's pray. Lord, we come before you this morning. We are trying our best, Lord, to make it through these difficult uh, solutions, and I pray that you help us continue to work, not grow weary. I pray that by the time we're done, we're going to be grateful for this study. And we're going to at least have more understanding than we had before we started. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...